0: Hi, welcome to the 7th episode, I'm your host Noel Woodward and this is For the Love Of. For the love of photography, through the lens with Nipun Prabhakar. This one is close to me because I'll be talking to a friend of mine from college about him, his work and his trysts with the camera. I've always known Nipun as an extremely passionate individual and I welcome him to the show. Nipun Prabhakar is an independent photographer and architect based in Kutch and Delhi. He works on long-term photo-documentary projects and besides that, he designs, researches and documents the intersections of built environments and communities. He has been working with the nomadic pastoralist communities of India, documenting their lives in the context of migration, climate change, conflicts and displacement. As an architect, he has worked with various South Asian communities dealing with disasters and conflicts. His thesis on the rehabilitation of the riot-hit community in Muzaffar Nagar won him a national award by the Council of Architecture and Thamayu's international award for the best graduation project. Nippun has been engaged in multiple rehabilitation projects in Nepal, which also involved him extensively documenting public spaces and architectural heritage. He has since worked on photo essays for various national and international organizations and was the co-recipient of the Berkeley Essay Prize 2014 and was the Cornell South Asian Fellow for 2019-20 for his project on Doors of Kathmandu. In part one, Nipun speaks about his life as a photographer and architect, chronicling the numerous events that led him towards his passion for photojournalism. If you haven't heard the first part, I suggest you stop now and head back to that. So moving on from the process, let's just dive into your work. Uh, maybe we could start with the nomadic pastoralist communities in Kutch that you've documented.
1: So um, the, uh, nomadic pastoralists the whole project uh, is called Living Lightly. Okay. And Living Lightly is a project started by uh, Sahiji one which is an organization based in Kutch. They work with the uh, environment and uh, and the curator is Shushma Ayangar who's a educationist and uh, activist based in Kutch. Mm. So it was her idea and uh, Living Lightly uh, project eventually turned out to be a traveling exhibition. And probably, I mean the biggest exhibition on uh, nomadic pastoralists that I have seen. It can be probably the biggest in India. So uh, the photography project is a part of it. It, ha- it is a huge exhibition. I mean, photography is there. They have films exclusively made for, for the, uh, this thing, for Living Lightly. They have games built. They have huge exhibitions on uh, the land and lives of the pastoralists. Uh, and I mean, before Living Lightly, Even in Bhopal, I mean, Bhopal is one of the roots of uh, Rabari's. Rabaris, is a pastoralist community who walk with the camels and sheep. And I used to see people, I mean, uh, people with a lot of sheep and red turbans, yellow turbans. And I used to wonder, what are they doing here? And every year they used to come. And I mean, even in Delhi on the highways, we we can like, sometimes we see people walking around and nobody knows. I, I mean, what are they doing?
0: Yeah, n- uh, nobody hmm? nobody no, yeah nobody
1: cares. Nobody cares. nobody cares, nobody cares. and uh, mm. so it was a introduction that uh, there's a community there are many communities across India uh, who have this uh, uh, profession of uh, pastoralism, and it's the it's one of the oldest professions in the world. I mean, all the religions most of the religions came out of pastoralism. Christianity came out of pastoralism. Uh, krishna was also a pastoralist in a way so uh, in uh, after i graduated in fact that was the first project i did which was working with shushma on curating uh, living lightly which was the first living lightly in delhi and i was working with photographers who were uh, document who had documented uh, the nomads uh, i mean uh, in their lives i mean. and uh, I was working with them, trying to understand, selecting photos, getting them for print, and doing all all that work. Next year onwards, uh, Shushma said that why don't you start doing, start documenting it. So then I started visiting, Kutch, started visiting Maharashtra, Telangana, Karnataka, and uh, walking with them, understanding how the whole system works, and uh, I mean. It's a, I cannot even define it in words how amazing the whole processes are, their traditions and rituals. I met a family which walks 800 kilometers every year. Oh, wow! On their journey, and uh, for them, I mean, living lightly, it's all about living lightly. Hmm. So, this is what I've been documenting, and eventually, when I started uh, visiting those places, understanding the narratives, Hmm. also started understanding how it's changing over time. Eventually, highways are coming up. Hmm. Um, People have started plotting their farms. So just imagine, I mean, they're like 400 year old routes, and suddenly there's a highway. And I mean, even for us, if we are uh, on a car, we rarely find a U-turn. Uh, we have to like drive so much to come back if we miss the turn. And for pastoralists, it's a very difficult thing. Uh, so there's this whole balance of development and of, uh, you know, these negotiations. So I'm just trying to capture that also. I'm trying to capture how climate change is affecting their ways of life. So, I mean, these are the things and it's it's a very, very, very detailed Uh, kind of project because it's not just me but there are uh, many people who are studying it and they uh, send me notes they send me ideas and then we work together on that
0: yeah that that sounds super interesting it sounds like one huge collaborative effort it's a huge it's a
1: huge collaboration and uh, it's a nationwide collaboration and a lot of experts are coming together uh, for this and living like was supposed to happen, but I think the pandemic has changed it all.
0: Maybe you could share some links about mm-hmm. this, and I could put it in the show notes later. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'll do that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, so, so you spoke about culture, community, and I don't know if this next one that I'm going to talk about fits into that category, but I've read this one a couple of times, and it seems like you keep going back to it from time to time. It talks about uh, Lucky the magician, which I found really insightful. Mm-hmm could we discuss that a bit yes
1: so um, the story of lucky starts from that time i was interning in uh, in bhuj because kutch was a very different landscape hmm. it was something that i had never witnessed before and uh, it was desert also it was also it also had sea it had uh, flat mountains it had a lot of interesting things hmm. and a very vibrant community I mean, it had a, a lot of different communities and all of them were like very vibrant because I think it was because Kutch also, the whole thing sprouted in seclusion for many, many years hmm. in terms of timeline. Very recently, the whole, this whole um, connection thing happened, highways and all of that. So uh, we somehow got to know that there's a festival on Mahashivratri in a village called Drang, which happens every year and there's a mela and all and i am really fond of uh, the village melas because you get to see a lot of interesting things and um, local crafts and things like that even in uh, hardoi we used to go to this mela called Numaish. so i mean there they had all that and all, all those things <laughs> yeah <laughs> you get to shoot uh, balloons through air guns and Even in Bhopal we used to go, you remember. So so we just went and uh, 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 it was me and Tapas who was the other intern. I mean, it was a little disappointing because by now most of the local crafts were replaced.
0: Exactly. That's exactly (laughs) what I was thinking about. Um, Whenever I visited a I can't recall Mm -hmm. the last one though. I always used to be Mm -hmm. fascinated by the crafts because you would always stumble upon something that was so out of the Mm -hmm. ordinary and beautifully made i think most of that is lost now and yeah. the indigenous crafts have fallen prey to large scale mass mm. produced items
1: yeah yeah so most of the most of the crafts that i was expecting in the Drang mela was replaced by you know cheap mm. plasticky goods yeah. I don't know why, I mean, they were very cheap, but still the bamboo products, the pottery that they used to make earlier, hmm. I mean, that was much better. So on that front, I was disappointed. So I thought, okay, let's just try out these uh, little st- stalls that we have around. One of them was, there was a loudspeaker and there, it was like, somebody was uh, screaming, ki, Jadugar Abhay Samrat is there and uh, he'll show magic tricks, this and that. And. I saw that and I just went inside out of curiosity and I took the ticket and uh, sat on one of the plastic chairs there and behind the curtain, I could still see a silhouette of a person who was talking on the mic that Jadugar Abe Samrat is going to come. And soon the curtain was raised and it was Jadugar Abhay Samrat who was talking about himself. <laughs> 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 so... Um, And see, he started showing all his uh, magic tricks, uh, which were mostly equipment-based. Yeah. And uh, there were a lot of children around who were really interested in enjoying it. And I started taking photos. And so, I watched the first show. And it was, I mean, it was not that great. But uh, people really enjoyed it. And I think this is what magic is all about. Entertainment. So, I went around I went uh, at the backstage and I started talking to uh, Abhay Samrad who was the magician and I said that uh, I want to document the whole process because this is it was fascinating for me
0: so sorry to stop you but uh, there's this one thing that came to me magic yeah. within the country has always been so intrinsically intertwined within the traditional and cultural landscape hmm. at least it was a couple of years ago
1: hmm. in terms of magic I think uh, all our uh, rituals that we do. All of that is also magic in a way. And especially in small towns, you see gully magicians coming and doing all sorts of tricks. Uh, and a lot of times we, uh, I mean, I fell prey to one of those tricks where that person, in, in, when I was in Hariduri, so that the person, he pretended to kill a, a, a kid and I mean, they, he just like did some chumantar and the other kid standing in the crowd, he fell down. And all of us were shocked. And he said, now give me 10 rupees. Otherwise, it'll happen to you also. <laughs> 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 so I gave him 10 rupees. Anyway, uh, but any other than that also, I mean, in, in faith, we have a lot of uh, relation yeah. with magic. Yeah. So uh, coming back to Lucky, I started documenting... I mean, uh, photographing how the whole process of this magic show takes place. And I was very interested in that. And I came to know that it's a family-run thing, a family of uh, six, seven people. Uh, Lucky Lucky is the magician. Uh, His uncles and his sister and his grandmother. There was a sound uh, system just next to the stage and there was a tear in the curtain through which the sound system man, he looks through the stage, looks at the stage. And that spot on the curtain is, I mean, I tried to take that photograph. And then suddenly the sound system man, he went on the stage and he started performing. And the person who was performing on the stage, he came back and he started working on the sound system. So, I mean, it was a very interesting process which was happening. I uh, uh, met uh, Lucky at that time. He was doing his graduation that time. And I just tried to understand uh, where the family is coming from they said that they had this whole tradition of magic in their families i mean from generations they were doing magic and uh, uh, their grandfather was in some circus which eventually uh, uh stopped so now they had to do mela magic shows and they were living in that in the same area then I, then i went back and uh, this whole thing stopped and after two years i got to know that oh i was in kutch and the mela was happening so this time I asked another friend uh, Satish and uh, we went on a bike trip we went to the Mila expecting that I'll find Lucky and I found Lucky and um, he was again doing the same magic tricks uh, but this time people were less I mean it was only me and 5 other people who bought the ticket and when he um, finally I went uh, to him and I approached him and I uh, said oh, do you remember me? he said, oh, I don't remember you much. Then I showed him the photographs and he suddenly remembered me. And uh, he also gave me my ticket money back. <laughs> he said, no, you, you take it. <laughs> so uh, it was a nice relationship. I think uh, photography can only happen if we share a nice relationship with people. Especially in terms of documentary photography. If we have those... Uh, genuine interest in people's lives. If we have, if we share those genuine relationships, uh, that friendship, if we share, there, that is uh, visible on the faces of people who are photographed. It's all about that. I mean, photography is the next step. First step is understanding people, sharing things. And recently, then I met. I, I mean, I couldn't go again uh, in the lockdown, but I called Lucky and I said. Uh, I asked him on how he's doing and uh, the problem is that, I mean, for magicians and for people in the, uh, all these uh, fests, people in number is their strength. I mean, they need people, uh, um, they need gatherings and suddenly it stopped. So Lucky is also now looking for work around Bhuj uh, because fortunately he's a graduate now. and uh, But his whole magic thing stopped and... Uh, so i mean this is what i wrote in an article on Livewire wire and um, and then i mean people came forward to help him and uh, i mean help him sustain for these months and uh, but lucky always says that he he says i don't want money i want to work i want to work i want to do magic tricks and uh, that time also you know uh, i was also interested in how this whole profession works so lucky introduced me to all these do you know they are magic communities of magicians yeah, yeah, around yeah, india yeah, yeah. and uh, all of them they have regular meetups across the country they share magic tricks they do all of that so he's a part of it and uh, apparently there's some magic school in pune where they teach <laughs> the magicians so all these interesting things i got to know from him and we still share a nice friendship.
0: Yeah. Mm. I think as a photographer, it's kind of gifted to you, the friendships that you foster over the course of your stints in different places. So we've spoken about your work documenting people and their lives mm. through Lucky. And now now let's just explore your work documenting an architectural project, mm-hmm. the Taragao Museum in Nepal. Uh,
1: for me, all of these things are connected. As I uh, said earlier, uh, all of them inform each other. Uh, Buildings are also like people. And, uh, Mm. you know, eventually we start to interact with building to be friends with buildings. And uh, this is what I started documenting in architecture photography. What I generally do is whenever I go to a city, I just like randomly explore different places. Mm. I take photographs with no intention of publishing them later or writing an article. But uh, it's just like, uh, I like exploring cities through my camera. And this is what happened in Targaon Museum's case also. Uh, On a friend's reference, uh, I was walking around the city, uh, around Kathmandu, and uh, suddenly stumbled upon a huge stupa, which is, I mean, I went there specifically for it, but uh, I was trying to find it. And then uh, the huge stupa is Baudha, which is... uh, it's one of the biggest stupas in the world, actually. Once you go there, then only you can understand the scale of it. And the best part is that it's just, there's no grand entry to it. There's a little gully kind of space from which you enter. And suddenly you are exposed to this huge grand stupa. So I just stumbled upon that thing. And um, I was walking around and I suddenly remembered that somebody said that taragam Museum is around it, but I couldn't find it eventually after and none of the people around the museum they knew that okay something like this exists uh, finally reached there and uh, wow what a building it was everything was in brick which is generally a common feature of uh, the buildings of Kathmandu but the whole form was very modernist because he, uh, the architect is, architect is karl kusha who is an austrian architect and um, I mean he came to Nepal to work on something else. He came uh, to plan the uh, new Kathmandu city. Uh, But uh, he was also interested in designing buildings and uh, he started working on this. So Taragawa museum was initially uh, supposed to be a hostel for westerners who could come and because because at that time in the 70s uh, the whole country was opening up uh, and a lot of westerners and uh, People interested in understanding the culture of uh, the country they came. They wanted cheap accommodation also. So, Carl designed it. It's a interesting thing. The whole, uh, he used vaults and repeated them. And the whole circular windows. So, in terms of form, being there is a very uh, different experience. Getting to know the whole complex. And uh, then I also realized that... Uh, Uh, They also have archives, architecture archives of those people who worked and documented the architecture of Nepal in that time. So they have all of that. So I just walked around, I documented it. I couldn't meet the curator that time. And then I, I mean, I went back because any project that I I want to do, I can never do it in one visit. Because you have to, like they say, you have to sleep over it. You have to, in order to absorb it, the whole experience, you have to spend some time alone with yourself. So I went back and after a few months, I went back again to the museum and, st- and I felt that uh, I should really document it. I just photographed it, came back, studied some more about it. And this is how buildings should be documented, different times of the day, in different lighting.
0: Finally, coming to the big one, (laughs) the doors of Kathmandu. I've Mm. always been fascinated by the idea of the ruin. I think uh, we've all had that moment where we stare at a ruin and try to imagine what a particular building would have looked like. Mm. But moving past the tangible, you start thinking about the many narratives that uh, may have existed. The people who may have lived within that Mm. space. The intangible aspects of time, space, memory, and existence. Mm. There's, there's something so powerful and evocative about this very aspect, which I instantly recognized in your photo essay. through your focus on a very mm. tangible element, uh, which are the doors, which while beautiful as visual markers, are also so deeply layered and intrinsically linked to culture and art and act as important spaces of interaction. They still do in most parts of the country and beckon you to kind of discover the stories yeah. linked with each of them. So I remember I got up one morning and I usually go through my RSS feeds and suddenly doors of Kathmandu popped up on Daily, And I was so thrilled and excited that I, I think I woke you up. I'm, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> you were the first person who told me about that. <laughs> uh, so, so could you tell us about the project as well as about the book that's in the pipeline? that's yeah. still in development right so
1: uh, as i was saying that uh, architecture projects have their own timelines and uh, i was in kathmandu the whole the project with the monk settlement i was doing was stuck somewhere between nepal and china uh, issues and uh, i had a lot of time and uh, somehow i have to walk to think i mean i cannot sit and talk. I cannot sit and think. I have to walk. So I started walking around um, uh, part and where I used to live that time. And uh, while walking, I mean, I, ju- I was just like exploring the, the old city and uh, the monuments around it and just taking photos with my phone. And I did it for one or two months. Then one day I was just sitting in the place I was living and just scrolling through my phone. And I realized that most of the photos I was taking was of doors. And then suddenly something stuck me and I said, I thought that, oh, let's start working. Let's start understanding them because at the back of my mind, I was really interested in what they had to offer. So I just uh, started collecting them and started talking to people on the streets about them. And the doors, I mean... What really interested me was that those were one of the most important part of a N- Nepali building. The settlements mostly which I was documenting was newari settlements. So, newaris uh, have this tradition of uh, worshipping the door and the threshold every morning. Thresholds generally are worshipped and they hold a lot of significance in almost all the cultures uh, across the world. Because threshold is like this liminal space, this boundary which divides the inside from outside. But uh, Kathmandu takes it to another level. Nepal takes it to another level. It's worshipped every day. Um, it has. It holds a lot of uh, symbolic meanings. The doors they present a lot of interesting things. So I was just documenting them. I was trying to understand it. And uh, one day, uh, a friend of mine, E, he introduced me to another friend of his, uh, Nation, who was. Uh, doing Buddhist uh, studies in uh, Buddhism for his master's. So he had a lot of interesting things to say about the doors. Before that, people were telling me about uh, different uh, oral histories and different, uh, they were giving me different narratives of, a lot of people were telling me different things about the same symbol. For example, uh, in a lot of temple doors, uh, on the top of the door, uh, you could see a uh, devil eating a snake. And I was always fascinated by I always thought, oh, what is this? So I uh, was one day just walking around and I met a lady, old lady. And they started talking to her on why do people paint it on the top of their doors? And uh, she said that in Niwari culture, they have this uh, story that uh, after people die, the Yamraj comes. If the person who is... Uh, dead, if he or she gets scared of Yamraj, they go to hell. But if they are not scared and confident, they go to heaven. So, they paint the scariest image uh, that they know of on the top of the door of temples. So, people who visit that uh, temple every day, they get used to seeing evil them. And so, and so, they are not scared when they die. So, I mean, these interesting stories uh, uh were uh, very nice and uh, uh, nation added another layer to them and uh, he told me about i for example uh i used to see a lot of wooden symbols like mostly there were five symbols on the top of the door frame so those symbols they were i mean sometimes uh, there was uh uh different poses of buddha on those symbols. Uh, other times, uh, they were just uh, you know wooden logs on the top of the door frame. But almost all the time, they were five. So he told me that you know these five, these are either five Buddhas or five evil. So five Buddhas, they had their own. I mean, different uh, different sutras from different points of Buddha's life, which was uh, Buddha who is giving, who is meditating. But what interested me was the five evils which is like uh, lust, greed, anger, apathy, and rage. And these five things, according to them, according to the people, when you enter the door, you leave those five things behind. So this is where they put that five symbols on the top of the door frames. So things like these. So I started uh, eventually after you know understanding all these stories, I started writing them. I started reading the doors of... Uh, houses or buildings around and i just started collecting them and uh, uh, and the best part was that each of them were different and i had so many stories about the same thing so i was not interested in verifying it in research papers but i was interested in what people had to say and uh, and they had a lot to say about that so i just started uh, collecting them and eventually i mean uh, I came back and I got a, a fellowship at Cornell called the South Asian Fellowship. And in that fellowship, I applied. Uh, I mean, you had to give a project that you're working on and you, you have to tell them that how you want to use their resources uh, in developing that project. And I felt by that time in uh, uh, last year, I felt that I now need to also add a layer of what the, actual studies say about the culture, uh, about the anthropological studies, about the doors, if, if there's any. And apparently, Cornell has a amazing South Asia library, Croc library. And uh, I really wanted to go there. And it, it proved to be a very, it proved to be an amazing uh, opportunity. And I really refined the whole uh, research and uh, combined that with the photographs. Mm-hmm. And now it's, uh, it's in. It's a book in progress.
0: Nice, nice. So moving past mm-hmm. your work, I'm going to move on to Studio BIM now. You officially started Studio BIM with Sarth a couple of years ago. While it uh, loosely can be termed as a photo studio, I don't really think it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, I feel it goes beyond that conventional idea of what photographers do. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us more about this?
1: Yeah. So Studio BIM is a collective that uh, Sarth and myself, we started, which mm-hmm. was... So we really felt that architecture photography now is very plastic and very mechanical. Yeah, I mean, you uh, pick up Instagram and you see—I mean, it's all highly saturated, mm. highly textured uh, post-process photograph that you see of plain dead buildings around you. And uh, most of the time, I mean, the building that you see in the photograph, and when you actually go to that building, you are really disappointed. Exactly. So. We just uh, had these ideas on how do we change the narrative of uh, architecture photography and also uh, make it into, turn it into a collective so other people can also come in, they can contribute. Uh, So this is how Studio BIM started. I was really interested in understanding buildings as photo documentary projects instead of architectural projects. And Saad is also, I mean, Saad, he went to Spain to do his master's. And I mean, he really wanted to understand uh, photography through architecture. Yeah. And he was not interested in all the other kinds of uh, 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 photography work. So he, his thesis was on the same thing. Uh, so we are—we work with different architects and we develop uh, the whole story of their buildings. And, uh, and not just, as I said earlier, not just about how buildings are on the day of their inauguration, but all the process that takes place in building that building and how the buildings are after they are finished, after people started living in them. So all of that, I mean, we try to do that. So Studio BIM is all about uh, that. And also, it's also a um, collective like Agor. So more people can come and join in and we really welcome them. So it's more like a platform for people who um, follow the same ideas who have the same ideas, who follow the same ideologies. Yes.
0: So coming to some of your recent work during the lockdown, mm-hmm. it's called the Lockdown Series of Portraits. If you could just break it down for us, how do you go about mm. it? And the more technical, the better. Yeah.
1: I mean, right now, after you're saying it, I just realized that most of the these series I worked on, they all of them came out of a situation I was in. So those of mm. Kathmandu came out of this whole situation of delayed delay in the building process and this came the the lockdown series came out of this whole corona pandemic situation I was locked yeah. inside the house for mm. all this time mm. and I really wanted to photograph and I also felt that this was the first time in the living history that the whole world wasn't going through the same situation it never happens I mean a lot of times there was happening in some country we don't know we don't uh, uh, give much to it but this time whole world, almost every country in the world at that time was in the state of a lockdown. And people were going through the same, you know, same things. They were going through same problems, same situations. So I thought, I mean, this that was a, a good time to understand how everybody else is dealing with their time. Because I mean, initially I had trouble dealing with staying indoors and, you know, passing my time. So it came out of this uh, curiosity on what everybody else is doing. So maybe I can learn a thing or two. So I just started uh, approaching friends initially, and uh, I just like how we do video calls. I started doing them, doing video calls, and uh, understanding what they're doing, and also documenting that. So I started taking screenshots of video calls. Eventually, I realized that the best in terms of technicalities best resolution is of facetime because they have this whole uh, live photo thing and uh, which is uh, also a three second video so eventually you can combine those little little videos and uh, make a little movie out of it so uh, we but we did uh, whatsapp calls we did facetime calls and on that for example on facetime calls like how we are talking right now we just like talking like that and then I asked them, I asked them to show me around their house, because this is also the first time I was visiting somebody's house through a video call remotely, understanding those uh, spaces. And uh, initially it was, I mean, I was uh, uh, taking photographs of people I knew, of friends and uh, but eventually I started meeting strangers uh, online. So I just uh, replicated what I generally do in normal shoots. I tried to understand the space, the surroundings. And so I just started doing it virtually. Uh, I also wanted to include people from all professions because every, everything was impacted. And uh, so my main idea was to, I mean, include not just people who were actors, actresses, but also doctors, but also uh, monks, uh, artists, musicians, writers, and just understanding that and uh, that was the curiosity i mean and that too uh, if i have a subject and uh, i have to document them uh, through video calls uh, you cannot do that like a normal photo shoot of an hour so you have to uh, according to the light you have to change the duration of the call you have to like uh, um, i especially for me average was like 3 3 days for a photo shoot because uh, on the very first day, you're not very comfortable, especially for people who are who you are meeting for the first time uh, on a video call. So you have to be comfortable first. Um, but I also used to study them earlier and uh, study. Uh, I used to sketch them. I used to understand the, the uh, facial structure, the body structure. I used to make uh, storyboards, which I generally do for most of my documentary photographs. I make storyboards. Uh, I compose frames but uh, the final frames are not restricted to, do, to those compositions, but they are the ones which inform the whole process. So I did the same thing for them also, for uh, other people also in the lockdown screenshots, uh, composed storyboards, and I shared it with them also uh, on the first day. So they also thought that, okay, this is something serious which is going on. It's not just like random guy contacting us and taking a photograph.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So... That relationship also, I mean, had to be built. Then we did a lot of interesting things uh, uh, based on um, what was available to us. So, uh, Elena was uh, in Italy. I mean, uh, with a lot of other people. I mean, we, for Elena, we there was no tripod available. So, she said, okay, let me use a ladder, aluminum ladder that I have in my house. So, she did it. It's also, uh, it's like, you know, voice controlling a camera initially. Because you cannot do anything, you only have to give voice instructions. <laughs> and uh, initially, it was frustrating, but then eventually I got used to it. And it was also about the subject doing all the work. So uh, they also have to be motivated enough, so they have to like put their cameras around and pose also for uh, the camera. Uh, for somebody, we <clears throat> uh, used a masking tape to stick the camera on the, on the fan. <laughs> so we get a wow. top view <laughs> uh, of the, yeah of the room so all those things we did um, i asked a friend who uh, uh, plays Iktara. so i asked him to play it for me i mean it was very it was very enjoyable for me also I really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks for sharing that with us since uh, that was the most recent thing in terms of uh, a photography series that you worked on Mm -hmm. to wrap things up. Could you talk to us about what you have in the pipeline? Um, After the lockdown series, I worked with
1: Marg on um, an upcoming article on for, for an edition. And uh, I mean, it involved uh, me taking uh, remote um, uh, photographs of uh, a lot of people, including one of which I, I mean, now I treasure it, uh, which is of uh, architect Revati Hmm. Kamala. This was the first time I actually uh, had a conversation with Revati ji. Before that, um, I met her in uh, uh, 2012 when she came to to Bhopal and all of us had like uh, interaction with her. But Revati ji was always known for, her uh, blunt responses and very straightforwardness. And so I was initially scared a little because uh, WhatsApp video calls or uh, all these video call screenshots, they need a lot of, you know, I had to instruct everybody. I mean, it's not easy because you have to ask them to, you know, put the camera at some location and then pose and then do this and do that. But it's very frustrating for them also. I mean, it was a, it took almost uh, four or five days. To do that shoot, and uh, by the end, I was having so many candid conversations with Revati Ji. I mean, we had plans that okay, as soon as the lockdown lifts up, we'll come. I'll come to their office and we'll meet. And uh, we had like plans of uh, uh, documenting their buildings and all of that. And then I was also sharing the these articles I've been writing, uh, and she was commenting on them. And then suddenly, uh, recently, got a news that she's no more. Hmm. so it was i mean i'm still in shock i mean we lost a, a very important person yeah because she i still remember i mean her work was uh it was the first time they introduced uh to us that uh, you can really work with mud and bricks mud architecture both of them i mean karma design studio was pioneer and they that whole inspiration uh is still there and uh, I'm still recovering from that shock. So that is, uh, as, and I mean, it turned out to be her last uh, photographs. So uh, I mean, the I feel that that is like my tribute to her now, which will soon come up. Uh, that is going on. And then I'm working on some visual research on a book project based in Kutch, uh, which is in the pipeline. Then there's, they, yeah, there are more interesting things in the pipeline. I and mean,
0: suddenly there's so much work now. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. So, just uh-huh. one last thing for our listeners: if you could yes. elaborate on the equipment you use. I use very simple equipments
1: I mean, um, um, I for uh, for for just myself, I use a Canon Eighty D, uh, which is a cropped frame uh, uh, camera. Uh, I use ten eighteen Canon ten eighteen lens for wide angle fifty mm for uh, tight shots, but. Uh, and uh, now, since three, four years, two, two, three years, I've been using this analog camera called Nikon 8008. So it is uh, my mentor's camera, Gurinder's camera, who no longer uses it. But uh, I am, I mean, for now, for all, most of my personal projects, I'm using this film camera. So this whole process of analog photography is suddenly, uh, I'm suddenly enjoying it very much. Because it's a slow process and I think we should, uh, it's time to slow down also. And um, it's also ultimately it's cellulose, it's physical, it's not uh, digital anymore. So you take the film, you don't know what is coming uh, in terms of a photograph, then you have to get it developed. So, uh, and then I also have a drone, Mavic Mini, which I use occasionally. (laughs) so i'm the analog photographer with a drone
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe i should call the episode that <laughs> cool thank you so much Nipun. thank you for joining us thank and you, sharing your story probably uh, we could do an episode with sarth as well where we bring yeah, we both of do your it. projects together yeah, we
1: should do that. Mm. so thank you thank you thank you see you around yes
0: see you soon That brings to an end a riveting conversation with Nipun, and hopefully we could try to expand the segment and reach out to many more people who practice in this sphere. For our next episode, we have Sampada and Swayam returning for a segment that we have cemented as the first recurring monthly talk show where we discuss everything that has to do with all the latest films and TV shows. So stay tuned. The episode airs next week. To keep up to date with whatever's going on, you can follow us on Instagram at For the Love of Podcast. Or you could write to us with your thoughts, ideas and feedback at connect at fortheloveofpodcast.in. Subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. So see you next week and stay safe. This is For The Love Of.